Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's another special member drive edition of the program. Our guest today is folklorist Lynn McNeil. Lynn McNeil is an associate professor at Utah State University, chair of the Folklore Program, co-founder and faculty advisor for the USU Folklore Club. Her books include Folklore Rules, a fun, quick, and useful introduction to the field of academic folklore studies. Um, and we're going to talk about folklore in general, digital folklore, a folklore ripped from the headlines right now. And we'll get to talking about the Kevin Bacon number, among other things. Uh, Lynn McNeil, thanks for joining us again. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm intrigued by the Kevin Bacon number. <laughs> uh, but let's save that. Okay? okay. That's your latest research, right? Um, I, you just mentioned before, one of you there, I'd, I'd uh, forgotten you're uh, involved in this paranormal caught on camera. That is true. Wait, tell, us, tell us what this is. <laughs> so, <laughs> Paranormal Caught on Camera is a show on the Travel Channel where uh, I and a number of other experts in different realms of the paranormal. So I'm an academic, clearly, um, but other people are paranormal investigators, journalists, podcasters, folks who spend their time thinking about the supernatural. We are all shown clips that users submit, folks who capture things they can't explain on security cameras, cell phone cameras. Someone points their phone up at the sky and thinks, is that a UFO? Someone reviews their doorbell footage and sees a shadowy figure that they can't explain. They submit them to the show. And we as experts get to review these and give our thoughts on what we think we might be looking at here. It's really fun, often very silly, but a really great encapsulation of this kind of in-between role that the supernatural plays in our contemporary society where for a lot of people, it's something quite serious. Some of the clips we get are very moving. Someone who's recently lost a loved one and then their TV starts acting weird and you can see how much it means to them that what if this is the spirit of you know my, my lost spouse or my lost parent trying to reach out to me? And also just sort of this over-the-top dismissiveness and ridiculousness that we see, you know, permeating all of this as well, where there are some pretty elaborate hoaxes out there, clearly. Mm. So you do, and I guess uh, part of this is debunking hoaxes and, and such. But your interest, I, I imagine, as you said, is is the folklore aspect of this. Yeah, too. so it, it is. It's funny. I was recently talking about the supernatural to a group of elementary school students who were asking me very seriously, so how do you know? You know, when you're looking at a clip, is it a ghost or isn't it? And I said, well, let me tell you a secret. On TV, it's always a ghost. <laughs> because there are certain clips where, you know, where the director is interviewing me and says, what do you think of this one? And I say, I think it's fake. Mm. And they say, yeah, it probably is. But if it weren't fake, what would you say? And then you can imagine which part of what I say they use on air. Um, so it's it's interesting that way. But for me as a folklorist, I like to set aside that question of is this really a poltergeist in this person's house or not and say, what am I getting from the story this person told? How are they making meaning out of this situation? And that, to me, is where we really stand to learn something valuable about the human experience and the human condition. Mm. And the show is unexpectedly great for opportunities like that. Mm. So what does paranormal mean for 
for us. I guess either different for both, but, but generally. Yeah, it it depends definitely on the belief traditions and the belief systems which in within which someone is raised and within which they live now, whether we interpret something as supernatural or religious. If someone feels that a figure came to them and gave them warning about something, that could be a guardian angel in one person's belief system, or it could simply be a serendipitous coincidence in another person's, you know, less religiously framed belief system. But either way, we have this incredibly strong drive to make sense of the unexplainable. And there is, whether we like it or not, a lot that's unexplainable in the world. And it may be that we will one day learn the very natural mechanisms behind these things. But in the meantime, it's one of those arenas where it matters to us. The number of people with whom I've spoken directly who say that they had the experience of waking up in the night and seeing a family member standing next to their bed and sort of looking at them sadly, lovingly, not saying anything, and then they disappear and they wake up in the morning and think, what an odd dream, until they go out into the kitchen and learn that that family member passed away in the night. And that experience, whether it's coincidence, whether it's wishful thinking, whether it was a spirit visitation, what it was was incredibly meaningful in constructing a worldview that, that connects people together for the person that experienced that. And people will say that themselves. Not everyone who talks about these experiences is black or white in their belief. People will say, man, I don't believe in stuff like this, but I know that it happened, and I know that it made me feel a sense of peace about losing my grandmother, that I saw her. So what we learn when we really lean into these experiences people have is that the the veracity of it, the, the proof of it, isn't what's important. It can be doubted. People can be skeptical, and it can still have been a meaningful experience. And we overlook that when we essentialize the supernatural or the paranormal, when we make it all about debunking or proving, you know, do you believe in ghosts, yes or no? Most people know that the correct answer is no, because that's the rational-seeming answer, the scientific, the modern-seeming answer. But to almost anyone you talk to, really in-depth with an open mind and a listening ear, the much truer answer, even for skeptics, is, well, no, I mean, of course not, but there was this one time where this thing happened, and, you know, it just seems too spot on to be a coincidence. And it was exactly what I needed to hear in that moment. And so I don't know, really. And it's that I don't know, really, that as a folklorist, I'm most interested in exploring. Yeah. Um, I haven't asked you this question for a while. We had you on, had you on quite, quite a few times. But uh, what is folklore? Oh, that's such a good question. And it's an idea that seems like it should be really easy to sum up. And yet folklorists have been agonizing about this for decades. In short, folklore is all of the forms of cultural expression that we're familiar with. So stories, beliefs, customary behaviors, modes of dress, all of those sorts of things. But as they exist 
on the level of everyday people, on the word of mouth cultural level. So instead of novels and short stories, as one might study in literature, we study fairy tales and urban legends. Narratives, yes, but not published, not copyrighted. The narratives that everyday people share and tell. And where people might study museum art and sculpture, we study graffiti and stick drawings and handmade crafts like friendship bracelets and bubblegum wrapper chains. I think I've just dated myself. I don't know if anyone (laughs) still makes bubblegum wrapper chains. Um, But so we see, I mean, even music-wise, we have classical music. We even have popular music, but we also have folk music, which to a folklorist isn't a stylistic designation. It's a designation of how does that music move through a population. So parodies, um, jump rope rhymes, those are really folk examples of music in a folklorist's mind. So you could have a folklorist who studies, you know, family holiday traditions. What does a family do at Thanksgiving? What does a family do on the 4th of July? And you could have another folklorist who studies fairy tales as they emerged in 18th century France. And you might have another folklorist who studies jump rope rhymes among urban school children. And those are such different scholarly endeavors, and yet they're all housed within the same discipline of folklore studies. Hmm. What does folklore teach us about a culture? I guess there's a bunch of stuff, but... uh... Yeah, there is a bunch of stuff. And the main thing, the main benefit of studying folklore is that we're getting some form of consensus when we look at this. So the very nature of folklore, the fact that it's not, by definition, copyrighted, housed in an institution, you know, propagated by someone invested in sending a certain message. There's no executive producers. There's no advertising dollars in folklore. Folklore has only its own relevance to enough people to keep it going, to make it circulate, to make it spread. So if we look at a piece of folklore, say a rumor or a legend that's actively circulating, We know, hey, that means something to people. That's saying something that those people want to say or express symbolically. And once we know that, as folklorists, we can go in and say, okay, what is that? What what's the significance here? What's the message behind this story or this belief or this custom that's keeping it alive? And because folklore isn't copyrighted, it's not fixed in its form. So an urban legend told in California can adapt itself when it comes to Utah and then adapt itself further as it moves on to Missouri or New York so that it feels more local, it feels more representative everywhere it lands. That's a process that folklorists call ecotypification. And that ability of folklore to be dynamic and variable, to shift itself as it travels, means that it stays relevant as it travels. And that could be traveling geographically or traveling through time. We have examples of urban legends told in the ancient past about one thing that are still told today about something else because it's a different time. It's a different place now. Hmm. I want to go to the headlines. Uh, Is there folklore coming out of Ukraine? Yes, there absolutely is. And we're, we're seeing it so on the ground and in the moment that it's hard to tell sometimes how we want to classify different things. I mean, we are watching in real time a whole series of overlapping information and disinformation campaigns. We are seeing the ways that rumor and legend and things like fake news merge to create a really murky picture 
of contemporary events. And then we're seeing that same folk level of culture come in and try and remedy this. There's all these grassroots efforts of people attempting to get information to everyday Russian citizens who are potentially being lied to by their government. And the ways of doing that are fascinating. There was a um, a meme going around Facebook saying, hey, get on Yelp, start reviewing small restaurants in Russian cities, begin the review as though it's a restaurant review, and then halfway through, start saying what that country is doing in Ukraine. And and it's this amazing use of existing communication systems to spread the news that someone else thinks is important. And we've seen that happen throughout history with folklore. One of the most impactful and moving things that I've seen as folklore come out of the Ukraine is this new, I don't know if it's new actually, but it's a presentation of what is said to be a Ukrainian curse. There was a video that went viral of an old woman in Ukraine approaching some Russian soldiers, handing them a handful of sunflower seeds and saying, put these in your pockets so when you die, flowers will grow here. (laughs) And this has been just so moving to people who encounter it as emblematic of what's happening to the people living in Ukraine right now. People have made cross stitches of this, T-shirts of this, paintings of this. I mean, the folk art that has grown out of this, the uses of it as a Ukrainian curse in Wiccan neo-pagan communities. A lot of people saying, hey, wait a minute, is this actually a traditional curse? And everyone's saying, who cares? It's so representative of this moment that it is now, whether it was before or not. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, probably the, a majority of, of you know, uh, folklore could be traced back, including, you know, very anciently, right? Some of it can, and some of it crops up when it's needed. Mm. <clears throat> Excuse me. That, that ability of folklore to adapt itself sometimes makes it difficult to look at an unbroken chain into the ancient past. But what we realize as contemporary folklorists now is that folklore doesn't need that unbroken chain into the ancient past to carry communicative and symbolic meaning today. Mm. And this is often where digital technology comes into play. We have the ability now to amplify messages, to send them faster and farther around the globe in a day, an image, that video of the Ukrainian woman handing that soldier sunflower seeds, made it around the world in a matter of hours, and in that process became traditional. So when we talk about something being traditional, it might mean that it's old, but that's not a requirement for traditionality. Tradition simply means this was passed on from person to person and was in those everyday people's hands in order to shape it into what it needed to become. Hmm. So this was organic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, natural. Uh, I guess what I have in my mind is a Slender Man. Ah, which, yes. Which is which is so interesting because you can we can trace to the very day yes. when Slender Man was created, and yet Indeed. it's taken a life of its own. It really has. June 10th, 2009 yeah. was the first posting of the first two images of the Slender Man. What's interesting is it highlights for us the unstoppable power of folklore, because yes, we know 
this was created. It was fiction. It was actually created in response to a forum post that said, create a paranormal image. I mean, there wasn't even an intent to deceive or to convince anyone this was real. It didn't begin its life as what we now call creepypasta, a scary story on the internet. It began as an artistic challenge. And yet it was so symbolically apt, so poignant, just so perfectly representative of something that resonated with people that it took off. And you can tell people the origins of Slenderman all you want, and there are people who won't believe it. Mm -hmm. And of course, once you know, people got their hands on this and started creating additional backstories. We can find cave art of Slenderman that appears to pitch him as an ancient figure. You know, in South America, we have purported Romanian fairy tales about a Slenderman-like character set in ancient Romania. All of these after-the-fact creations, but they're often so well done, so artful, that they seem to fill in a backstory a lot better than, yeah, some guy named Eric just photoshopped two pictures in 2010, you know? And, And that's where we see folklore lives on its symbolic power, its representative power, not its literal truth. Mm-hmm. Um important point there uh for those who don't know tell us who slenderman is what's so what, what Slen- is the legend? yes slenderman is a figure a horror figure that comes to us from the internet he appears as a very tall slim faceless man we assume gender because he's wearing a suit but perhaps we shouldn't um who has usually now a number of tentacles emerging from his back that gives him a definite supernatural or paranormal flair. Early on, those tentacles were more a suggestion than an obvious component of his visual appearance. But he appears most often in his early renditions sort of as an ambiguous threat to children. The two original photographs, the photoshops that were created of him, showed him one on a playground, standing in the background, sort of in the shadow of a tree with this suggestion of of tentacles coming off of his body. The other one showed him as sort of a vaguely blurry form in the background of a photograph of unhappy-looking children appearing to be marched down a street somewhere or a, a road in the wilderness. And the story that grew was basically that he was a figure who came and took children. I mean, very much like the Pied Piper. We have precedent for this figure who entices children and leads them away. His folklore was growing on its own for several years until very unfortunately he made international headlines when two young girls in Waukesha, Wisconsin, lured a third girl into the woods and stabbed her 19 times purportedly in the name of Slenderman. That is when most people learned the name Slenderman, the concept of creepypasta, and who this figure was, and there was a definite moral panic about this. Why would anyone go online and create this character designed to encourage violence among children? Of course, that is not (laughs) what Slenderman was created for. The young women who were doing this in the name of Slenderman um, have received lots of help since, but in interviews later, Slenderman was not their only inspiration. Lord Voldemort from the Harry Potter series was a figure with whom one of these girls conversed fairly often. So it's clear that there was a lot of of influence going into this instance. The young woman who was stabbed did not die. She lived, which is 
good news. Um, but it definitely made Slender Man a bit more of a household name in a very unfortunate way. Mm-hmm. Well, probably a key factor here is this uh, This connects in with primal fear, right? Mm, absolutely. Fear of someone that's going to harm our children, right? Yes, and we have had traditional folklore about these frightening figures throughout recorded human history. I mean, we have so many different cultural manifestations of what can generally be termed a frightening figure that this is something we we know as core to the human psyche, the boogeyman, the idea that children don't stay out late, make sure you come in before it's dark, whatever it is out there might get you, you know, fill in local scary creature has been used as this sort of cultural warning system. It's interesting to see how Slender Man has developed over time, though, because while he was initially this very obvious frightening figure, he was subsumed by youth culture, by digital culture, into almost a tortured helper figure. He became the one of the backstories that Slender Man gained was that he himself was a bullied child and that, yes, he's violent. Yes, he might even be evil, but he comes to the aid of children who are bullied now. And in a lot of visual depictions, what we might call fan art or fan fiction online, he's depicted as having a growing family of children who needed him, who needed help. And he's become this almost benevolent father-like figure online, which of course is not in keeping at all with popular culture, which wanted to run with the Slender Man as this really great horror film creature. And of course, the horror film made about Slender Man was a huge flop, largely because he'd already moved on. Folk culture moves much faster than popular culture, and he became what people actually needed him to be, rather than the monster everyone wanted to freeze him in history as. Mm. Are there any successful uh, uh, examples of folklore moving to pop culture? You know, Anyone successfully monetizing. <laughs> yes, absolutely, and, and it's often in a more subtle way. The Candyman mm. film franchise is yeah. a big part of that. You know, taps into into the the folk ritual, say of Bloody Mary, where you invoke someone by saying their name three times. So it's often more on that level, on the individual motif level, where we see. This resonates with audiences because it comes from their folk culture. And that subtle use of folk culture is often a much better way to connect than an attempt to take over mm. the, the entire franchise, if you will, or the entire mythos. And we see that not just with horror films and legendary characters, but with fairy tale characters as well. I mean, Cinderella is one of the most remade, redepicted movies of all time. That's clearly a storyline that resonates with us. Little Red Riding Hood as well. We just love to recreate that, And it's often because the core symbols, a young girl in a red hood, a glass slipper, speak volumes to us. Those are such highly charged, multivalent symbols that you incorporate them into a movie and it brings all these associations and meanings to bear. It's doing a lot of heavy lifting when we incorporate folklore motifs into popular culture. Mm. Well, we're overdue for a break. Uh, it's been such a fascinating conversation. We're putting our best foot forward here. One of our favorite guests, Lynn McNeil, is well, with thank us. thank you. Um, and uh, also a member yes. of, of UPR. So Long-standing. So uh, maybe, uh, you know, uh, your appeal to, to fellow listeners, fellow uh, potential members, 
Yep. Why should we support programming like this? You know, supporting programming like Utah Public Radio is in a lot of ways, and I promise I'm not just being cheesy when I say this, but it does the work that folklore does in our communities, which is tie everyday people together. Utah Public Radio, it's local, it's regional, it's it's national. We get international news. I mean, I wake up in the morning, I ask my Google Mini to play Utah Public Radio. It plays on all the speakers throughout the house, and it connects me to the rest of the world, alone in my home. It connects me to to here where I live in Utah and to the country at large. And that sense of personal connection to that outlet is something that you can't get with, say, Netflix, with Hulu, with a lot of our other information systems. Public radio is connecting with people on a different level than a lot of our other media sources are. And that's something that I think is worth paying for. Here's how you uh, pay for this service. Here's how you uh, renew your membership or become a new member. Uh, just a fast and easy process. couple of minutes uh, out of your day. 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495. Or upr.org. Upr.org. And we got a bunch of thank you gifts, including the new UPR uh, art mug. I don't know if you've got your collection, Lynn, of the the mugs. Oh you've yes, they hang on my wall. Okay, very yep. good. <laughs> so you can add uh, you can add the newest one, the U- new UPR art mug. That's only eight dollars uh, a month. Uh, there's many others there. You can look at that at upr.org, or you can ask uh, our volunteer when you call 800-826-1495, and you'll be helping to move us uh, toward our overall goal which is critical so that we can pay for programs like Access Utah. 800-826-1495 or upr.org. We'll take a break now. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, We have with us folklorist Lynn McNeil. She's associate professor at Utah State University, chair of the folklore program and faculty advisor at the USU Folklore Club. Uh, she has contributed to uh, many books. Uh, she's authored Folklore Rules, a fun, quick, and useful introduction to the field of academic folklore studies. Uh, still to come, the Kevin Bacon number. I don't want to t- delay that, tease that a little more. Um, <laughs> always good when you're talking about Kevin Bacon. Um, you said before we went on the air, Lynn McNeil, I want to uh, follow this up now. You said misinformation and folklore move in the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is something that that folklorists have had to contend with for a long time and in a variety of different ways in that word of mouth transmission networks, the way that folklore moves, I often describe as a large game of telephone. If you remember being a kid and you'd sit in a circle with your friends and someone would come up with a message or a sentence and they'd whisper it to the person next to them who would whisper it to the person next to them and so on until it goes all the way around the circle. And by the time you get to the end, the message is completely distorted, totally different. In many ways, that's what happens with folklore because it's dynamic and variable in its cultural expression as it goes from person to person it changes it develops and it becomes again what we need it to be it becomes maybe more representative of our fears or our wishes than of reality and of course that can be used maliciously that can be done on purpose it can even happen accidentally at times. There's a lot of satire out in the world, intentionally created social commentary that's meant to be poignantly humorous that 
if you detach it from its obvious satirical context, like, say, you know, its connection to The Onion as a satirical newspaper, it becomes an urban legend pretty fast because urban legends and satire both rely on very similar characteristics of seeming plausibility right on the edge of plausible and ridiculous and yet very appropriate to contemporary events and issues. And when we know, <clears throat> excuse me, when we know that, when we see that that's the avenue by which folklore is moving and that's also the avenue by which accidental rumor, intentional fake news is moving, we start to say, oh man, what do we what do we do about this? Folklore seems like something we might want to promote or encourage in the world. It seems like a, a net positive overall. But that's not always true. There's xenophobic, sexist, racist, misogynistic folklore in the world. Um, folklore, like any form of cultural expression, shows us as we are more than as we wish we were. And so paying attention to that becomes a way to engage with what's going on. Folklorists have often said, especially in the realms of belief, in, in the realms of the paranormal, as we were talking about before, that we want to be agnostic. We want to set aside that question of, is this true or untrue? Am I proving it or debunking it? And instead ask the, I think, much more interesting question of why is it so important to people to believe this or to possibly believe this or to discuss the possibility of this being true with the people in their lives? And that agnosticism has become a lot harder for folklorists these days in this age of fake news and post-truth society where suddenly whether or not something is true seems a lot more essential to understand. And that role of the debunker, which for a long time folklorists wanted to leave to journalists or popularizers, suddenly seems like a bit of an essential first step in the study of a lot of folklore. The next step then, of course, is to really get to the root of, okay, so if it's not true, why is everyone so invested in the idea that it is? And that's really where we start to uncover what keeps misinformation going. Why do stories that are factually incorrect resonate with us? And there's a folklorist who I, whose work I and many folklorists very much admire, Linda Daig. She was a very famous legend scholar who made the point once that Legends can be true or legends can be false, but legends are always right about something. They're getting something right or they wouldn't stay circulating. They would die out of circulation. So it's a folklorist job to come in and say, okay, one, is it true or false? That's a good thing to know. And then two, what is this story getting right that keeps it going? And that, I think, is essential work of us understanding ourselves, understanding our communities, our society, our neighborhoods, so that we can work to be better. Mm. Is that something uh, individually we should do? It was just occurring to me that maybe that could help us, you know, debunk it. Okay, that's not true, but why is this yes, out there? Right? Absolutely. And what's interesting, Tom, you've hit on it. It's the hardest thing to do with ourselves. We are ready, raring to go to debunk 
the stories of people we disagree with, people on the other side of the political spectrum, people from a different cultural background than us. Those are the folks that when we hear stories that seem to support their point of view, we're immediately online fact checking that going, that can't be right. I don't think that's true. Let me find out. And then coming up with, oh, you just want to believe that because it lets you maintain this other ideal that you hold, you know, important. We do not like doing that to ourselves. And yet that's the most important realm in which we can do it. There is always folklore to support any side of something. And it's hard. It's a it's a difficult point to realize that what stands out to us when the people we disagree have it does not stand out to us in our own lives. The information that we have that fits our worldview, that makes the world make sense, even if we don't like the way the world makes sense, it fits. We don't question that stuff. And we certainly don't question why we would want something to fit in that worldview. And yet there's a lot of understanding that can grow out of it, but it's not easy. Uh, yeah, uh, certainly, 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 that's very, very true. I wonder what you would say how you how you get there. Well, you know, that's a difficult thing. Uh, Jeannie Thomas, another folklorist um, here at Utah State University, has come up with what she calls the slap test for urban legends. And it's funny because it's it's basically a when I'm hearing a story, should I be cautious about believing it. And it goes through steps of, you know, does it attempt to scare me? Is that something that is a part of this? Does it rely on complicated logistics? Does it deal with some sort of A-list person, you know, some sort of some sort of famous person or someone, whether locally or nationally, is is in the news? And it walks us through these questions so that we can say, if I'm answering yes to these things, then I might want to take this story with a grain of salt. But one of my favorite things that Jeannie always says is you slap yourself. You slap the stories. You're not here to slap other people. But it's this tacit acknowledgement that we much prefer to debunk other people's stories. And and it is. It's an interesting first step to say just because something lets me feel righteous or you know angry or resolute in my in my feelings does not mean that I should not question its origins. Mm. We're talking with uh, Lynn McNeil, a folklorist at Utah State University, associate professor at USU and a faculty advisor for the USU Folklore Club, chair of the folklore program. Uh, we're talking folklore and all things related on the program today. We're also raising money for UPR and for Access Utah. Um, so shortly we'll go to break. When we come back, I promise at that point, no more dilly-dallying. We'll get to, <laughs> we'll get to the Kevin Bacon number and, and some of the, the very interesting things you've got going on right now, Lynn McNeil. Before we do that, though, I'm, I'm wondering, um, do you remember when you first became a member of your public radio Oh, man. Station, when you took that important step from listener to, to member. You know, honestly, and this is a true story. And as a folklorist, I feel silly saying that. But it was when I realized that I was listening through the pledge drive. That yeah. waking up, putting UPR on in the house, 
felt like waking up the day and greeting my friends. This is how I start the day. This is how I frame what I do. This is what gives me the things I'm going to talk about when I run into people in my community. And the fact that I found that I was enjoying listening to all the voices I recognized on the radio, talking about coming together and supporting this incredible community resource, I thought, wait a minute, that's me. That's exactly what I'm doing. I'm benefiting from this. And thinking about all the other small things that I am willing to invest money and resources in really drove home to me that this is something that I should be valuing in the same way. Again, if I pay for streaming services, and I do, I pay $7.99 a month for several streaming services, I can do at least that much for something that is so much more personal, something that is so much more connecting me into my community. Well, uh, why, why don't you join your support with Lynn's? Uh, she's a member Please. of, of uh, Utah Public Radio. Join your support with hers at 800-826-1495. Just uh, call the number a couple of minutes out of your day. Do it right, right now while you're thinking about it. Mm-hmm. 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495 or upr.org. That's upr.org. We've had uh, a couple of calls come in uh, during this hour, Lynn. Um, our friend... Uh, Mary Hears from Menden. Awesome. We love Mary. Thank you. And uh, Daniel, I hope I'm pronouncing your name, Daniel Katoy uh, from St. George has has called in. So join your support with Lynn's and with theirs. Yes, and thank you to those of you who have called in and pledged. That's awesome. We appreciate that. And let's keep that momentum going uh, so that we can reach our goals and, uh, and pay for the programming, the initiatives that uh, we have going and would like to continue, like the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. Uh, with journalistic collaborative solutions journalism, uh, we'll be sharing content with various other uh, outlets, and you'll hear their uh, content on our air. Uh, finding solutions for the problems with the Great Salt Lake. Uh, we have a project called Bringing War Home, where we're going to be collecting your stories, stories of military veterans and their families and friends. Uh, the list goes on and on. Of course, Access Utah. You're supporting the, this program with your with your call right now. 800-826-1495 or upr.org. We'll take a break. Be right back. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about folklore. Always fun to do that. We're uh, talking with Lynn McNeil, Associate Professor at Utah State University, Chair of the Folklore Program. Uh, at uh, USU. So I've been teasing this. Let's jump right in. Uh, you, you've told me a little bit about uh, some of your very current uh, research. Uh, so tell me about the, the Kevin Bacon number. Yeah, so this is sort of a, you could call it a lot of different things. A game is usually what it's called, where finding a famous person's Kevin Bacon number. This started in the mid-1990s, legendarily, legend has it, out of a conversation from a group of friends sitting around making the statement that, you know, Kevin Bacon really has been in movies with everybody, a very prolific actor. And that has led to this tradition of finding someone's Kevin Bacon number. So there's actually a website that someone has designed for this, the Oracle of Bacon. You can go online, you can put in someone's name. Um, I just put in Will Smith, an actor who's been in headlines quite recently. Um, And Will Smith has a Kevin Bacon number of two. Will Smith was in The Legend of Bagger Vance with Jack Lemmon, who was in JFK, 
with Kevin Bacon. And this concept, this six degrees of separation sort of idea, is something that has been what we might call a folk statistic for a really long time. It's something that sociologist Stanley Milgram studied a long time ago, kind of saying, is it true that within any given population, if we could see all of the ties, the invisible ties that connect seeming strangers to each other, would we indeed find that everyone is actually six or fewer degrees of separation apart? It it speaks to this this small worldview that we imagine is underlying, you know, the nameless, faceless society at large that surrounds us. And folklorists have been interested in this for a number of reasons. I mean, we talked about the transmission of folklore earlier, the friend of a friend chain that an urban legend is often attributed to is a part of this sort of series of connections. The internet has really highlighted, excuse me, our interest in the interconnectedness of different people so that the invisible ties between us are suddenly made more visible in digital social networks like Facebook or something like this. So in addition to something like the Kevin Bacon number, we see other fields of expertise doing the same thing. So among mathematicians, there's the Erdos number after the very prolific mathematician Paul Erdos, who's published a lot. So you could have an Erdos number of three or four if you'd published with someone who'd published with someone who'd published with Erdos. And in the realm of music, the band Black Sabbath is known to be a very prolific collaborator. And so you get a Sabbath number if you performed with someone who performed with Black Sabbath. So this is interesting to me as a folklorist because, again, like all folklore, these ideas aren't going to persist if they aren't telling us something valuable about the world. And one of the things that has interested me the most, my colleague here at Utah State University, computer engineer Chris Winstead, brought to my attention that there is a amalgamation of these traditions known now as the Erdos-Bacon-Smith number. So it's sort of like the EGOT of six degrees of separation. So that someone who has appeared in a movie or a TV show in some proximity to Kevin Bacon has also published in some proximity to Paul Erdos and has also performed music in some proximity to the band Black Sabbath ends up with an EBS number, an Erdos-Bacon-Smith number, and Smith-Sabbath number. And this combined metric of collaboration seems like a really meaningful accolade in contemporary society. So we decided to study this, to understand, look into this history of collaboration metrics, of change, chains of societal linkages, and what this means to different people. And one of the things that we decided to do was to, in a fun way, study this autoethnographically and see if we could get ourselves an Erdos-Bacon Sabbath number by doing this. Um, I have been lucky enough to be on Jeff Goldblum's television show, um, The World According to Jeff Goldblum. So I have a Kevin Bacon number of three through Jeff Goldblum, who has a Bacon number of two. And um, Chris Winstead, my engineering collaborator, has an Erdos number uh, through his own publications. And the actress Mary Elizabeth Winstead 
um, has a Black Sabbath number by performing with a musical group who has performed with Black Sabbath. So the three of us are collaborating. We are going to be publishing a paper on this. But of course, we also need to appear in some musical performance together, which we managed to do last winter when the three of us got together and performed a folk song, recorded it, and posted it to social media. So this has been a really strange and fun research project where we're sort of playing with these ideas of, okay, so what is the value of this? Why do these sort of traditions persist? What value does this create, not just for others, but for ourselves? Very, very interesting. And I think this is filling a need, right? Um, a, A need for connectedness. Oh, yes. Or or to feel like we're not totally disconnected. Yes. And I think that we see now more and more traditions that utilize digital social networks to help us believe in that small worldview more. Flash mobs. I think this is at the heart of a flash mob where a group of people who are seeming strangers, as we see online often in a train station or a, a public city center, Suddenly music begins playing. Suddenly all these people that you thought were random bystanders are dancing in sync, are performing together. And it gives you this perception of, wow, the world is so much more interconnected in a meaningful, expressive way than I thought it was. Here I thought these people were strangers. Look at what they're actually able to create. And I think that these these chain traditions where we see network ties being made visible for us really help support that small worldview, that worldview of interconnectedness that I think is essential to us right now at this point in history. Well, that's a good place to end the conversation for today. It's uh, fun as always. Um, I wonder uh, what you'd say, Lynn McNeil, about, uh, about our UPR community. Yes, we're we're tending to the community right now, right? Absolutely. And something like public radio helps encourage that sense of interconnectedness. If we are invested, literally invested, not just intellectually or emotionally, but financially invested in this public radio station, we know without a doubt that we are interconnected in this community. We are helping to sustain a resource that gives back to us and to all the other people in this community in a way without which we would not have that same sense of interconnectedness. We can all sit around and watch the same movie on Hulu, and it does not have the same effect as listening to a show like Access Utah and living in the state of Utah and being able to connect to that content with our fellow Utahns. That is something worth supporting at least as much as Hulu. Uh, yeah, that's a good level to, to suggest, right? Um, and we hope that we're in there somewhere. And here's how to support this community. 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495. Just to call that number. Very nice volunteer will answer, take you through just some basic information, and uh, then ask you if you're at a certain, certain levels, if you'd like the thank you gifts. 800-826-1495. Or you can go online to upr.org. That's upr.org. Org. And uh, and a big thank you. I'm thanking you in advance. Well, Linda McNeil, um, it's been a pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I love chatting about folklore. And uh, thanks, everyone. We go out, as we always do on Thursdays, with uh, Leo T. and Skywatcher. 
As many cultures, one sky. Skywatcher Leo T here as we look up, look around, and get lost in space with the Hubble Space Telescope. Yeah, it's not going away. Astronomers have discovered the farthest star yet, an extremely hot, amazingly bright giant that formed nearly 13 billion years ago at the dawn of the cosmos. This luminous blue star is long gone, but so massive that it almost certainly exploded into bits just a few million years after emerging. Its swift demise makes it all the more incredible that an international team spotted it with observations from the Hubble. We're seeing this star as it was about 12.8 billion years ago, which puts it about 900 million years after the Big Bang, said astronomer Brian Welsh. We definitely just got lucky, he said. He nicknamed it Erendel, an old English name which means morning star or rising light, a fitting name for a star that we have observed in a time often referred to as cosmic dawn. An image made available by NASA on Wednesday, March 30th shows the star and the sunrise arc galaxy stretching from lower left to upper right, optically bent due to a massive galaxy cluster. Between it and the Hubble Space Telescope, which captured the light, the mass of the galaxy cluster serves as a magnifying glass, which is what Einstein told us it would do. Look for the Skywatcher site for this image. And as we look a little bit closer to home, in early dawn Sunday morning, the waning moon shines in the southeast. Look for the left of it for a spectacularly evolving triangle of brilliant Venus, fainter Saturn, and Mars, as shown on the Skywatcher Facebook page from Sky and Telescope. And oh, Castor and Pollux in Gemini are still very high overhead these evenings and uh, moving to the southwest. They're roughly three finger widths at arm's length apart. Now, use your imagination or your binoculars and look up and find the Clown Face Nebula. Yeah, that's right. It's not Kinko, but uh, it's in Gemini, not far from Castor and Pollux. It's a little disk of a planetary nebula. And, of course, even closer in low Earth orbit before it's totally commercialized, a Russian Soyuz spacecraft carrying NASA's Mark Vandehei and two Russian cosmonauts undocked from the International Space Station on Wednesday landed back on Earth in the steppe of Kazakhstan, a vast open grassland. Good news for getting along in space. And also getting along in space 50 years ago in the real space age of 1972, Apollo 16 and 17 both landed on the moon and came back. They spent lots of time roving and hiking and enjoying the magic. They brought back pristine moon rocks. Scientists are just now discovering some of these gems, or they're just looking at them anyway, and they're discovering surprises we're going to tell you more about next time as well as some of their hikes around the moon. It's many cultures, one sky. The following from poet Margaret Pettis. More than ghosts walk here on nights when the moon bathes the yard with crooked shadows of poplar, when the final leaves dapple the snow like spots on a white Appaloosa, when the north wind had nothing left to strip from limbs bowing to its passage. With perfect cloven tracks, blue in the first light, they come at night Tipping bird feeders with strong tongues, the hungry band of graceful marauders winds through trees that offer no cover, refugees from frozen mountains finding no enemy in this sleeping house. So keep enjoying life. Look up, look around, get way lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T on UPR with translator stations statewide and streaming live at upr.org. I